Welcome to Episode 5 of Living in Recovery, a podcast devoted to sharing the stories of fellow CBP employees who are living in recovery with an addiction. The focus of this podcast is to share the experiences of those who have struggled with alcohol or drugs in the hopes of breaking the stigma that's often associated with addiction. Also, the goal of this podcast is to stimulate hope amongst those who may be struggling but are discouraged or intimidated by the prospect of seeking help. As a disclaimer, the words expressed in this podcast are based on personal experiences alone and are not meant to be taken as medical advice or to promote one method of treatment. Today, John shares his recovery experience and how treatment helped him come to terms with his addiction. John is a contracting officer in OIT. Now, John discusses what works for him in his approach to recovery. When you came out of treatment and you go to your women's meeting, your mm-hmm. your sobriety yep. meeting, uh, were you concerned with any negative impact on your career? No. And this is, I'm so, so glad you brought that up because I've had, and not everybody can say this, but I've had the enormous benefit in CBP of having, I've had some better than others, but I've had some great leadership. And I had a supervisor and she was the busiest woman in CBP. But I still try to keep in contact with her as much as possible because this woman changed my life. Um, As busy as she was, I mean, she was a 15 and she would always take time out of her schedule to spend time with me and to talk to me about my life. And because she knew how much I was struggling, she knew. I like to say nobody knew because everybody says, oh, we didn't know how much you were drinking, which is a lie because everybody knows if you're drinking, everybody knows you have a problem. Just so we get clear, let's clear that conspiracy right now. If you have a problem, we all know it. So, um, yeah, but she would always take time and she was always gentle and considerate and caring. And she would talk to me and spend time with me. And when I told her, she was the first person I called when I said, I need to go to rehab. And I told her, I said, ma'am, I said, I need to go to rehab. And she said, absolutely. She goes, you go take care of yourself and we'll take care of the paperwork. And when you come back, we'll take care of things then. And I came back and um, she moved me in a position so that I could ease back in because, of course, other people have taken over my responsibilities when I was gone. And I eased back into what I was doing. And she always made sure that, hey, watch the stress because, you know, you don't want to fall back into old old, old traits. And um I kept her abreast of my, you know, sobriety, how things were doing. That's how interested and caring she was, that I kept her abreast of things that were going on. And I am forever grateful that when I hit a year, I sent her my year token, my coin that I got, and she keeps that to this day. And uh, I I had a benefit. I was talking to her on the phone, and uh, I told her that she saved my life because if it wasn't for that kind, caring person, if it had been a supervisor that was just like, well, let's discard this person. Let's look past any kind of benefit that they could be to CBP. Let's look past, you know, what they can offer and just see this person that's troubled right now, this person that has some difficulties that just needs assistance with. And let's just discard them and let them handle their own issues on their own. No, they they look past the faults 
and saw the that there was a person there that was hurt that just needed a little help. And she reached down and gave me a helping hand. And her lifting me up, I, I hope, benefited all of us. You know, I work hard. I try to do the right thing. And I try to contribute. And it, that's because of her. She did that. She, wow. she absolutely did that. Yeah, that's a good supervisor. Yeah, she was a she's a she's an amazing woman. That's great that you had that support. They took care yes. of everything. Yeah, she did all the pain. She did it. She goes, don't worry about it. We got this. Yeah. And I trusted her Im- implicitly. And I went to rehab without a concern because there's no phones there. So you can't like follow up and check email. So I just trusted her. And like like those uh, trust falls you do at those camps, you've heard of trust falls. I did. I, I fell and I just trusted her. And all I worried about and focused on was my sobriety. Whatever happened after that 28 days, I'd face in 28 days. What does recovery look like for you today? Oh, another great question. So recovery is, okay. So let me phrase it this way. So when I sat, this is going to sound kind of bad. When I sat in Ashley in those chairs and people were like, oh, recovery's fun. You're going to have all kinds of good times being sober. I sat there with the cynical look like that is the biggest load of hogwash I've ever heard because everything I did, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon in 2012 and around mile 20, they had this little table with little shots of beer and they ran out of the little shot glasses as I was coming up and they just handed me a full Bud Light. So they had photographers all along the uh, line, right? And there's a photographer uh, photograph. Uh, for the Marine Corps Marathon of a guy running with a full can of Bud Light through Crystal City. That would be me. And with his big grin on his face, everything I did, I had alcohol with. And I couldn't, I went to concerts with alcohol. I played, I had partied. I did all kinds of stuff, everything with alcohol. So I didn't, I had no imagination, no idea of what to do without it. Now I can't imagine doing it. Because I go to concerts, I remember the concerts, and I look at all the people. I went to a Alice in Chains concert uh, a couple months ago, and we had great seats. And I remember looking around me at all the people that were stumbling drunk and people that didn't even make it to the Alice in Chains portion of the show because they had to be drug out. And I'm thinking, geez, I would have been there. Like, they were already too drunk but to see the show. Now, granted, I'm going to make a caveat here. There are... <laughs> You can drink and not be an alcoholic. If you're, if you're drinking at a concert, good on you, knock it out. But you know what kind of person I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person like me, the person that has a problem, the person that goes way too excessive. If you drink like I did, if you were a real alcoholic, you know what I'm talking about. And I look around like that and it doesn't, I have, I want nothing to do with that. I remember everything now. I'm happy. There is genuine joy in my life. I wake up every morning and say, uh, God, please help me stay sober today and please help me enjoy the day. And I go to bed every night saying, thank you for another day of sobriety. Help me to stay sober tomorrow. And I love it. And every day is beautiful. I got 24 hours. I keep a chip in my pocket and I say, I got 24 hours today. How can I fill it with the best possible things? That's my 24 hour chip because all we had is 24 hours. Doesn't matter how much time you had. All we have is 24 hours. I don't know what's more impressive that you had that chip in your pocket or that you <laughs> sat at an Alice in Chains concert. Oh, yes. No, it was Bush, Alice in Chains, and Breaking Benjamin. And 
into uh, see Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie. Uh, I go to a lot of concerts, and the drink doesn't see that's it. Th- and that's another thing. If you're out there, I'm, I'm talking to whoever's listening right now. If you're out there and you think there's no way I could ever go to concerts again or ever go to anywhere restaurants again, anything like this, no, listen. That this is a temporary thing. Uh, now, granted, I wouldn't advise it within like your first year or something like that, because that may be problematic. But the obsession does go away and there will be a time when someone can have a drink around you and it's not going to bother you because you'll know in your head that that is poison. And if I put that in my body, I know exactly what's going to happen to me. And you will look at that like it's the bubonic plague. And you know what that means. That that glass right there full of liquid means I lose everything. It means death and destruction. This is life and death. This is literally, for an alcoholic, this is literally life and death. That, for me to drink, is to die. It literally, 3.4, or 0.34, I almost died several times. So I know if I drink, I will drink myself to death. And uh, alcoholic's death is not a pretty thing. You turn yellow, you get cirrhosis. It's a slow, painful death. Uh, watching all your organs shut down and you die slowly in a hospital. Hopefully your family is around if they can bear to watch you die. It's not a good way to go, but don't do it in your first year. What's the best thing about being in recovery and what do others who are struggling have to look forward to? Okay. So the family. So this is, I went to um, a a meeting, a 12-step program meeting when I was in my 20s. And I looked around at all of these people and I thought, holy heck, these people are really bad off. Like, these are some degenerates. They have, these people have real problems. There's no way I'm like one of those. And I tightened my tie and I walked out to my car and I took a sip of a little vodka that I was hiding in my car and I drove back to work. Yes, because I didn't have a problem with vodka in my breath. And um, and then 20 years later, about 20 years later, I find myself in the same situation again. And I find myself surrounded by 14s, 13s, 15s, SESs, um, all of these other people who I have incredible amounts of stuff in common with. They're all the same and they have a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of information and are just interesting people that just so happen to be like me have a problem that when they drink, they can't guarantee what's hap- what happens when they have the second drink. But we're a family. We, ha- we call, we keep in touch with each other. I call, we call it. I call another, at least one other alcoholic every day. And we all keep in touch with each other and we do stuff together. There's like outings. There's like a canoe trip coming up, a camping trip coming up in August. And you're like, but I don't know these people. But you, going to a meeting is sounded like the worst thing possible, but you'll get to know these people. And these people genuinely care about you. And it introduces you to a fellowship. I mean, where else in the world, if I went to an airport right now, say I was waiting on a plane. And I was wanting a drink and I was nervous because I really wanted a drink. Did you know I could walk up to the ticket counter and say, hello, okay, can you ask, tell them that I'm a friend of Bill 
can you please tell somebody I'm a friend of Bill? And they will get on the speaker and say, hey, could a friend of Bill's come to the counter? Next thing you know, some other fellow will walk up and say, hey, I'm a friend of Bill's. And you've just met a fellow alcoholic and you will have uh, support until your plane leaves. Mm -hmm. That happens? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. That's really cool. That, this, you'll never find support like it. There's 12-step meetings everywhere in the world. If you need, I had a friend and uh, this friend, he works for, he works for the Department of Defense in an area that I can't disclose. Um, but he called his sponsee. His sponsee was feeling down and he said his sponsee actually gave this. He was talking. He said he, he got a call. And he picks up the phone and it was his sponsor. And in the background, he hears small arms fire and a couple explosions. And he, had, he says, so-and-so. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, hey, how you doing? And he goes, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm doing all right. Hey, I was just checking on you. And he just started talking to him like a regular conversation. He goes, yeah, are you sure you should be talking to me? And he goes, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. I'm fine. And he's like, okay. But yeah, where else are you going to find that kind of camaraderie? I mean, we found it in the military, but outside of the military, I mean, and well, for that matter, there's a lot of military folks in the rooms because we also, there's a lot of, we shared PTSD, a lot of shared um, alcoholism. There's a lot of shared drug addiction, a lot of shared problems in that arena too. But the camaraderie, I mean, where else? We laugh about things that we call normal people would say, you know, oh, that's horrific. You know, things like, oh, yeah, I remember when I got my first DUI. You know, things that other people go, oh, that's horrific. And we would just go, ah, yeah, I remember that, you know. So it's the community. It's the bonding. It's the ability to call somebody at 2 o'clock in the morning. I had a friend call me the other night at one thirty in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I have insomnia. And uh, he called and he's like, hey, I just, I've really had a rough day. And he goes, I just need to talk, talk to somebody. I was like, yeah, sure, man. And we just talked. We ended up talking for an hour just because he goes, I'm being real snippy with people and I'm just being real short. And I just got a bad attitude. And I just don't know why. I just need to get it off my chest. So we ended up talking and it turns out he's like under a lot of stress and he just needed to vent and get it off his chest. I was like, dude, you're under a lot of stress. It's like totally, you know, acceptable. And you just need to, you know, vent and let it go and forgive yourself. It's okay. You know, we're all stressed. It's all right. You know. But everybody just needs somebody to talk to. I mean, we have therapists, but you got to pay them. So everybody just needs a friend. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I love about the program. The camaraderie. The camaraderie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Community around it. Yep. Absolutely. What do you find to be the biggest challenge to your recovery? Stress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so stress and the balance, the work-life balance, I am either, well, because I think because I'm uh, prone to addictive behavior, I'm either all in or all out. And I've had this discussion with my boss. I'm either all in to work or all into family. Finding that balance between the both has been very difficult for me. So like currently I'm doing, because of certain things going on right now, which y'all are all aware of, um, doing like really long days, right? And um you have to make time for family. You have to shut off. So that doesn't mean sacrificing sleep, John, so you can do both. It means you have to find time for things. And if, 
if something has to slip at, you know, you only have so many time, so much time at work. You can only do so much. And I know that's going to be controversial here, but you have to find a balance with your family. And stress will eat you alive. It releases cortisol. It's not healthy. It's physically, it's physically detrimental to your body, not just mentally, but it's physically detrimental to your body. Stress will kill you. And it also is the first trigger, especially if you're new, that will lead you to go, ah, oh, I just need a drink to relax. I mean, that was one of mine when, uh, when I would relapse. That's what, like, I just, I can't sleep because my mind wouldn't turn off. I just need a drink so I can sleep. And then, of course, for me, if you have one and then you're back on that, uh, that merry-go-round and you can't stop. So it's just, I don't want, I want to use the word excuse. I mean, we'll call it a trigger, but the, the point is you're looking for an escape. Yes, it is kind of a reason, so I call it an excuse. But the point is you're looking for an escape to not be yourself. And what yourself is right then is stressed out and you need to deal with the stress. So the responsible thing to do would be deal with the stress and what's going on in your life, take control of the situation and get a balance. But what's easier is I'm just going to forget about it and take a drink and pass out. It's all about responsibility. For sure. For sure. We could all use that mentality. Yes. And I'm I'm preaching to myself on that one because I don't do it. What would you say to someone who may be trying to decide if they should seek help and why should they bother when they are clearly some understandable reasons they begin using alcohol to begin with? I love, love that you asked that question. Okay. So first I would say... You know, there's tests out there to say, you know, how do you know if you're an alcoholic or just whatever kind of drinker here? Because not everybody that drinks a lot is an alcoholic. I had a bunch of friends that when I said, hey, I'm an alcoholic, their drinking went way down real quick because they're like, dang, if that could happen to John, that could be me. <laughs> it scared the living daylights out of them, right? So they weren't alcoholics. They just like to drink. But if it's causing you problems in your life, that's one thing. But here's the thing. It's not what happens. It's not how much you drink. It's what happens when you drink. So, for instance, if you if you say, I'm just going to have one drink, and then that one turns into two, and that two turns into three, and then that three turns into a bottle, and that happens frequently, you might have a problem. Or I'm just going to have one beer, and it turns into be a six-pack, and that six-pack six pack becomes every day. Or I just need I just need one drink to get right. The twelve step of recovery plan is all about looking inside. Drinking is just a symptom of the problem. Drinking is surprisingly it's not a non drinking club. It's a self discovery program. I know that sounds odd to hear, but it is. So people drink because they're trying to escape something about themselves. Me, I was trying to escape a slew of like abuse issues from being younger, stressors, all kinds of stuff. And I just didn't want to deal with. If you face those things head on and you deal with them and actually face life on life's terms, you'll find it that you don't need an avenue of escape. You've dealt with things and you can deal with them. So if you say, I drink because I'm stressed, deal with the stress. I drink because I can't handle my kids. Talk to your kids. If you say, I drink because, you know, X, 
maybe you should look into X, see what X is and, you know, deal with X. If, if you're drinking too much because it's poison, you're putting poison in your system. And if you do this every day, especially if you drink every day, and then a lot of people say, uh, I didn't always get in trouble when I drank, but every time I was drinking, I got in trouble. And, and then take the, twi- the test. The test might help. I like what you said about it being a, a self-discovery program. Mm-hmm. I jotted that down because it really is. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a non-drinking club. It's a, self, it's a spiritual program for non-spiritual people. I'm going to get hate mail for that. <laughs> I think it'll be okay. Nice. I do. Those are all my questions. Do you have anything else you want to add? Well, let's see. What to add? All of us have very stressful jobs. We're in a very highlight position. One group of people will say, because of this administration, your job is stressful. One people will say, because of this administration, your job is stressful. Our job is always stressful. We have to balance compassion with our job. And it's a very tough job that we have. We all have. I mean, because everybody supports the officer and the agent who actually has to enforce the laws of this country, right? And especially to those that are actually on the line doing the duty of this country, it is very extremely stressful. And everybody understands that you want a way, an avenue to deal with that stress. However, for some of us, our brains are geared in such a way that having a certain having certain substances just sets us up for failure and it just takes us down a dark path. And unfortunately, we can't pursue that path. I had a stressful job and I took a different career route because I wanted to get away from all the stress. I had to do what was right for me. I had to do what was right for John and move away for a while and take a different position because I wanted to spend more time with my family. Because what was more important to me at that moment was my sobriety and my family. Um, sometimes we have to put what's most important to us to do that. Now, if you're if you're actually on the line and you're and you can't make those decisions, then I totally understand. But what you can do is find some like-minded people, maybe go to a meeting, find some folks you could talk to. And I assure you, you will be in good company. The folks that you talk to there, I go to meetings not to break break anonymity, but I go to meeting with several people who have PTSD who've seen combat. And they've seen horrific things, but and they know stress and they know uh, harm and horrible things. And together, when we're together, we help each other, we aid each other. And through that camaraderie, like we said before, and that compassion, we find it, we find it that we're able not to have to pick up a drink. And that's the most important is making it through that 24 hours without finding it necessary to pick up a drink and maintaining our spiritual condition so that we can get through a day with that little thing that we're all looking for is just a little bit, little piece of serenity. Because it's all about serenity and being happy with ourselves. I can look in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I like John. I'm happy with John. This is part two of a two-part conversation between John and Stephanie for the Living in Recovery podcast. To hear the first half of this interview, go to CBPNet Wellness and Resilience Programs and then navigate to 
Substance and Alcohol Misuse Prevention. If you have questions about any of the Workforce Care Directorate programs, including this program, email us cbpresiliency at cbp.dhs.gov.